Tell me what you see. I see a long, narrow brick building, four stories high. Across a small alleyway sits its identical twin. Evenly spaced windows puncture the heavy walls on the top three levels, and the ground floor has doorways spaced farther apart. The smell of food trucks mixes with the sounds of local bands playing faintly down the street. The bricks are worn, well-loved, a collage of soda ash, red clay, and decades of wear and touch. Hundreds of people stream between the two buildings, the murmur of their activity filling the air. They're carrying art, small furniture, vinyl records, old clothing, donuts, and everything in between. Where am I? I'm at Soa Market in Boston's South End. It's like food in a way. If you talk to somebody about how they made the dinner for you and what went into it and what the process was, and you see it as the end result, I think it will taste better and you will have more emotional connection to it than just picking it up somewhere and eating it. And so to me, architecture on that very detail level tells that same story. Welcome to What Builds Us, a podcast that uncovers the ways our built environment affects our emotions, experiences, and our day-to-day lives. I'm Chantel. And I'm Brian. And this week we're looking at the parts that make up a whole of the building, all the different layers that put them together. The uh, pages of a book, if a book was a, you know, building. If a book was a building. If a book was a building, in theory, it would be the pages. Yeah, these are all the like little discrete elements that come together. Scratches Uh, on the wall. And uh, And also the concrete. Yeah, what that wall's made of and what's hanging, you know. And how that makes up your experience. All that good stuff. (laughs) All the stuff. So when you think about layers in regards to anything, so whether it is a book or if it's a building or if it's architecture as a whole or a city or whatnot, it's always made up of a lot of smaller components. If we were to bring back scale into the conversation, even though we've talked about it a stupid amount. Yeah, you're probably tired of us, but... uh necessary because scale it's like so versatile it can go from so small to so big and the thing with layers is you can think of it on a really small scale being that of what makes up a wall so there's like drywall and paint and studs and all these things that a lot of people might not care about and architects think are really interesting but and then it can go up to the progression through a building or the progression through a city and how all that affects your experience in it. Yeah, it's, it's something that when you think about how things, say, overlap or whether they're materials, like Chantel said, or whether they're urban public spaces, how things might hide one another, hide things that came before them, um, get hidden behind things that come after them, get revealed later. One of the things I always brought up to people when I was talking about materiality of a space, and they were like, that sounds so not interesting. I was like, well, when you think about it, you kind of have this subconscious understanding of what a building is built with, because of your senses. So one of the most relatable examples that I've brought up is if there's a storm outside and you're inside of a place, if you can hear the storm, if you can see the storm, if you can almost feel the building shake when it's the winds are going really crazy, I was like, that's all telling you something about the space that you're in and whether or not you feel comfortable in it. I was like, so if you can hear the walls rickety and shaking, you have an understanding that it's not that safe in here. But if you were in a building and the walls were two feet concrete thick and you couldn't hear anything from the outside, you would just be in there and you'd be like, nothing can penetrate this. <laughs> I think it was it was super interesting when we living in apartment buildings in the United States and then when Chantel and I briefly lived in an apartment in Berlin, uh, 
Apartment buildings in the U.S., uh, I'm going to make a big grand, you know, characterization here. They're made of wood, generally. Uh, <laughs> older ones, say, like the old kind of student housing we're living in. It's made of wood, thin walls, you can hear all your neighbors, and it impacts your your quality of life and all these important things, how well you sleep if you get woken up. And that's due to kind of the layers that make up a wall. Yeah, like you can understand how thick the ceilings and floors are and the walls are based on even that super viral video. I don't know if you saw it of the upstairs neighbors. Oh, yeah. And oh, it it's so like good. How they, there's always just an absurd amount of sounds happening and you don't really know where they're coming from or what it is that people are doing, but you just lie awake at night being like, what the heck? It just sounds like bowling balls. That can't be what it is, but that's what it sounds like. We'll it link like to it on the blog. It's super funny. It's really funny. And that's all because of what the building's made out of and like whether or not you can or cannot hear it and then you have like this relationship or resentment towards your space because of that yeah when we were in berlin all those buildings are uh, almost entirely made of concrete at least opposed to world war ii ones and because those like shanta was saying the walls are a little thicker and they're made of a different material it's really one layer of concrete with some paint on either side instead of this kind of assembly of of uh elements it creates a hollow space you, it's really hard to hear your neighbors in those apartments. It, you have a total different sense of of where you are, how you relate to those people around you. And also privacy. Yeah. Like, I think even in apartment buildings, even if it's your own private space, there's still a sense of like who's on the other side of these walls from you. Yeah, and that's because of the different layers that make up the walls that surround you and, and the way that they're put together. Yeah, and so when you think about it, the conversation can span even beyond these sensory relationships with what we have to the space that surrounds us and it can go based off when you see walls that have handprints on them and like what that tells you about someone's been here before when you start to occupy a city and you go from one space to another you start to develop this like almost like they're telling stories i don't know yeah yeah they you can have layers that exist not as a as a extreme physical layer something with a lot of thickness but a layer of patina or a layer of wear that that belies a, a history even simple things like i walk the same wooden path to work every day like down these wooden stairs and they have a a mark on the two sides where everyone walks every day thousands of people they're actually getting worn down and discolored and changed a little and and that's history that's that's people's experience and movement and kind of a mapping of that so as a really weird example there is this street i used to go up and down to go back to school like from my apartment down to the school. And one day I was going for a run and I tripped and I fell and I gashed my knee open on the sidewalk. It was really bad, but I bled and there was blood on the sidewalk, which is gross. But from that point on, for like weeks, I would walk up and down that sidewalk and I'd be like, oh, look at that memory of me being an idiot, (laughs) (laughs) forgetting how to use my body. Yeah, these layers can exist like just to you. They can exist because of your personal history, your idea of a cultural history, but they have different layers of meaning and, and value and importance to different people yeah. because of whether they ate it on the sidewalk or maybe <laughs> they had some special event in a place that it doesn't change its appearance, but it means something. It is a layer of meaning to you. Yeah. And I think it brings in the sense of nostalgia and comfort and how people find that feeling of home in a place because of whether or not it's you're able to see yourself in it or because you know that other people have existed in it. The super archetypal example of that, of a resistance to new construction that then becomes a lo- uh, beloved, are the former um, 
World Trade Center towers in New York, when those buildings were built, people hated them. They really, really hated them. They didn't like their style, they didn't like their size, they didn't like the plaza, they didn't like all these things about them. And over time, people really came to love them. Because they became this, like, monument. Yeah, they became a place that people spent their day every day. They went out to dinner there, or it just became, like you said, it got a a layer of wear and of love to it. And then especially once they're gone, that's kind of all you have left is, is the layer of memory that exists inside your head. Yeah. So we wanted to bring in someone who's thought and written a lot about this idea of layering and just architecture in general is one of our professors from our college. Both Brian and I have studied with her and traveled with her. She was my thesis advisor. Her name is Ann-Katrin Schultz, and she's phenomenal. Yeah, she's amazing. You know, it's like food in a way. If you talk to somebody about how they made the dinner for you and what went into it and what the process was, and you see it as the end result... I think it will taste better and you will have more emotional connection to it than just picking it up somewhere and eating it. Mm -hmm. And so to me, architecture on that very detail level tells that same story. Architecture now is made from a lot of pre-manufactured products Mm -hmm. which have surfaces that are easy to clean and, you know, easy to maintain and it's the curious notion about craftsmanship versus something that doesn't have a human hand involved um, that doesn't have to be dealt with ever and I think culturally we're on a strange path if we don't want to maintain items our relationship with them is also potentially compromised. It's that ability to allow the intent of the architect allowing the user to understand that change has happened Yeah, I think it can happen in all sorts of ways that shows, okay, this was old, and now we're inserting this new thing. Yeah, I think a really good example is when factory buildings that are in those giant brick buildings are being redesigned to be these nice apartments, and then people love living in them because they feel so, like, there's such a history there, and there's such a story there, and now it's their home. But that unique connection is what resonates with so many people when it's brought into their home, and they, like, feel like they're living in a story. They're part of the story of the building. To me, layering isn't the hidden stuff. The layering that's useful to me is the one that you can read, where you see the edges, where you see somebody added a a new paint or new cladding, and some of the old surfaces are allowed to to exist, rather than wiping it all clean, um, cleaning it all up, and, and building completely new. And I think we've reached that point where we can't afford throwing brick walls and brick structures away. I was at a poetry slam once, and someone delivered this beautiful poem, and it was on minority communities. And when people come in and they gentrify it and put up all these really big buildings, because it's this movement of like white people coming in to take over their area, there was this whole metaphor of bleach coming in. And it was so powerful. And what that does is it removes that layer of like history and life that lived there and it, now it's just all these new clean surfaces and buildings and it's modern and all this stuff and, and what I think is so important about what she's talking about with layers is that movement to leave parts of the past in new design so it doesn't feel like it's just cutting out history yeah, or, or she, identity. She compared it to an organism which I think is a really nice example. It allows what what is there to live and to, to have a future and to be recognized. 
uh, and not, not bleached out. So if we expand the system from just surfaces to people's stories and people's experiences, I think there is um, this immaterial layer of our memories and our associations. So the spaces are just kind of the stage set. And so a wooden clad reading room for many has associations with studying in depth, sitting down, being very quiet, and it will trigger a certain feeling. So I think there's our human component that makes these so interesting um, are the personal stories, but then the ones that are shared across cultures or shared across a place. So, you know, looking further at Boston, one could say there's there are lots of brick layers all over town, right? A lot of newer buildings try to use that material as a layer to connect to the history. It means very different things to different people, even though superficially it's all the same color and it all ties in together. The way we see it and the the way we relate to it depends very much on our history with Boston. What she brings up is something that we've talked about before, this association of understanding how you, to perform or what to expect in a space that you're entering or existing in based off of how you've seen it used before or how it's been used before and these connotations of like this kind of material, this kind of space. Yeah, and what I think is nice, we've talked about it in kind of an abstract way with some specific examples, but Anne-Katrine gives it like a nice term and think of it as a layer just as equally as the paint is a layer. Mm -hmm. It makes it, I think, very powerful. We're run by a system that is putting a lot of attention on the income generated and the profit, and that might be compromising some of those reactions and feedback loops. It's costly to um, bring in materials and layers that have substance to last and, and that maybe tie in with some of these more crafts, crafted historic um, buildings. I think it happens more successfully often on a smaller scale. I feel like we're missing out on educating people in, in schools more about architecture. So, you know, kids have courses in history, they have courses in the fine arts, but there are very few architecture courses. And so to me, it seems like there's a resistance to against what is not familiar to us. Whereas if we were more familiar with more things, we would probably be more curious about that kind of architecture, more curious about living in a, in a slightly different setup. And the culture sets a certain expectation and that's what people see and, and want. It doesn't necessarily correlate with what's good for them or what's the only option out there. It's very much defined by what's considered a good quality solution or a, a, and it's also defined by wanting the same thing maybe others have by striving for sort of a certain level of equality. I think spaces that have good consideration for people's needs and that are well designed and well articulated tend to make people feel comfortable and not necessarily lead to a need to change it. I think where this lack of capacity to change things is really difficult on people is if the space is free of any character, is low quality, um, 
not tempered well, you know, all those things that are physical and non-physical, then you, you wish to interact, you wish to change that. And if you have no training, maybe it's a little daunting to figure out how to fix it. But if you're not enabled to interact with the space and change it, it feels like you're stuck with a very uncomfortable situation. I think she makes a good point that you especially feel like you can change things when you see them every day and they're really low quality. Like we knew a lot of people, and at least myself included, who during undergrad lived in some like pretty tough apartments, like <laughs> not some high quality. Bad conditions. Bad conditions. And people definitely altered them. Even silly things like like hanging Christmas lights because you're because the lights that come with it are really bad or painting a wall or putting a pot like that's a that's a change that you're making. Do you know the rapper Aquafina? No. She <laughs> she has this really crazy music video and the whole song is about being a freshman in college and putting posters on your walls. Ah. It's like the whole song is like I got posters on my walls. It's really funny. I agree. When you feel like the option is there for you to change it, for you to put something up or take something down or or knock it down or rebuild it even, that inspire, that becomes a lot more inspiring than other things. Situations when the curiosity in you is, is sparked. Yeah, even if you, like she's saying, don't have any training or don't know what you're doing, but you still feel like you have to do something. I did want to talk about um, layering in relationship to thresholds mm -hmm. and transitions. I think when we talk to people about architecture, it's often seems clear cut where the building starts and where non-architecture happens. Mm -hmm. And I think the interesting spaces are actually the ones where it's not so clear if you're inside or outside. The successful facades are often the ones where there is a thickness to it that allows you to go through a threshold slowly and, and feel it and have give that an extra space. Mm -hmm. Like foyers and lobbies often are the most important space in a building and they, in a millisecond, you will decide if you feel comfortable in there or not. And whatever comes after is a whole different story. So to me, this expansion of the change between interior and exterior is really, really important because that's how you read spaces and that's something where the immaterial nature of perceiving it has some space to unfold. So what I like when Anne Katrine talks about thresholds is that in one stroke she's uh, mentioning what we were talking about earlier, that layers happen at multiple scales. So if the wall is super thick as you move through it, you're experiencing those layers of that thickness, but also if you're moving into kind of a, an entry space or lobby space and you're experiencing layers as a series of spaces, so from outdoors, this kind of transition, and then to your final destination. It's funny because in architecture school, I feel like the first vocab words a lot of students learned were conceal and reveal, yeah. and it got to a point where I was like, I don't want to hear it anymore. <laughs> but in reality, it's one of the most incredible feelings when it's actually utilized very well. If you can imagine a really narrow and short hallway that's like kind of dark and then it leads you into this like grand open space because of the feeling of being closed and then open, it totally changes your relationship to that threshold. Yeah. Yeah. 
I think often also we don't really look very carefully. We, we are in our thoughts. We are, you know, what do you remember about your commute this morning? Mm -hmm. Probably very little. And so to give people opportunities and create spaces that um, are a bit more memorable or that allow waiting space to be more beautiful and have more attention go into that. And you know, I think beautiful and beauty is a, is a term we don't deal with that often. And most writings about architecture historically try to trace why and how something is beautiful. People know and acknowledge if something is beautiful, if a space is beautiful, but they're not quite sure what the ingredients are. I think it's interesting to think about beauty both as something that is just useful and, and worthwhile in its own right to, to be joyful and, and kind of celebrate it, but also as a kind of a, as a trick to get people to, as you say, to look better. And as they begin to look at the space around them to either consciously or unconsciously change their idea about what that space is, how they belong in that space, how they belong with the other people in that space. To take your example of a, like a concert hall, that if you just walked in off the street and immediately found your way to your seat, I think your idea about what it means to share that space with people would be totally different. That pause, like the thing that makes someone stop. And I was listening to something on how on memory and how people will remember a lot more of their day if something really significant happens. And even going through a lot of buildings in my life, I remember ones where walking up to it was like a really grand experience. That idea of being drawn to it and then getting to walk through it made me appreciate and pay attention to more of what was going on inside of it instead of it becoming this just monotonous everyday existence throughout a space. I agree, and it's once you're alerted to one detail or one thing, you will find more and more of them. It's like when you are shopping for a red car, all of a sudden there's only red cars around, <laughs> right? Whereas it's yeah. the same in architecture. I feel like once you pay attention to windows, you will start seeing how many incredibly interesting types of windows are out there. Um, you learn to see as you take on different topics or as you get alerted to different topics. And if the broader public isn't trained to expect high quality environments, they're not going to happen. So somehow what you were saying, I think, put it really nicely. Once you start pausing at times and really trying to understand what affects you and what doesn't and what is the rhythm of things, how do you move through, you know, we're in movement also, we're, we're talking about architecture quite a bit as a static um, experience, but the reality is we're constantly moving, we see it in perspective, we see it out of the corner of our eyes, so a lot of things unconsciously get, get processed mm -hmm. as you're going about your day, and so the moving, as you're moving through them, experiences get formed and memories get formed, and they're not all conscious, obviously, they're not all pausing and taking yeah. it in. Yeah, the more we are aware of things, the more they will also improve because everybody will pay more attention. Yeah. And it matters. If it matters to a society that your public spaces are um, are valuable and are, you know, are, are pleasant, more and more will happen that yeah. way. I mean, it's I like, think we can agree more, kind of the yeah. way to think about the whole premise of what we're doing is yeah. based in a deep agreement with what you're saying. Yeah, the architecture will be the response to a call, but the call needs to be made in the first place. I really liked the term reclaim when I really started to think about it because it implies this notion of it wasn't for you in the first place and now you're going to reclaim it. 
You're both kind of bringing up this idea of that there's like a moment of, of spark to change perception, right? That kind of once you introduce mm-hmm. this idea that, that the built environment belongs to you and it has value and it has value for your community, and that places a lot of burden, <laughs> so to speak, on the shoulders of, of architects and designers and urban planners. Is there a way for the built environment, as Chantel's saying, to kind of innately have that quality? Do you think it's on people to go out and spread the word? What, what, what do you think that fits in? I think it is a shared responsibility. I think um, architects carry quite a bit of it, but they're not the sole decision makers. Um, a lot of the spaces we deal with um, have been decided by policies, by um, committees that are there's not a single architect on them. Um, so. I think the responsibility is with all. It's the architects have a certain segment of decision making, and it's actually gotten much, much smaller over time. So it would be we would fail at impacting our environment if it was just designers and architects being responsible. I feel like it's all of us. It's really a social duty, in a way, to educate people of all you know of, of all segments of the population about buildings and spaces and how they contribute to your life. The thing that I've noticed recently, a lot of coffee shops and public places will turn their Wi-Fi off on certain days. It's kind of strange to think about how that within itself will guide masses on where they're congregating and how they're moving and when they're moving. The data that is generated just by you carrying a smartphone around and the fact that so many things are done through that smartphone that I now can, if I design a building, I can now tell how many people will walk by that front door and if they just bought a pizza or if they just um, picked up their child from daycare. I can, you know, I can pull a lot of information and based on that I will, I can design my entrance differently or I can design um, how the space should be used at different times of the day and different times of the year. I, I had to. I used to have to just stand at that corner and sort of watch it. Now I can actually get pretty real information about who's out there and what they're doing, and it's only getting more and more precise. Mm-hmm. And that is a set of information that we'll have to work with in addition to user information that our clients give us. I think that that's, again, kind of bringing it back to how can a user influence architecture, right? And a lot of people, like I was saying, think that they can't because they didn't bring a hammer and nails and whatnot and wood. And they're like, yeah, they're like, I can't physically change the space. But at the same time, they are physically changing the space by just existing in it, even unconsciously, because your phone is telling everybody what you're doing, you know? And so that within itself, by just existing and thinking about where you're going and why you're going there and what you're doing there, and being more conscious of that flow is being conscious of your impact on greater design and whether or not it's an immediate change, like smashing a hammer through something, or if it's something that over the next, honestly, especially in Boston with all the construction that's constantly going on, like within the next year, how someone's gonna, how that specific space is gonna be different. The more people walk, the more sidewalks there will be. The more people are out in the public realm, the safer it will be. And it's that's just a, a, a fact that it has been proven in many, many places that if an urban area isn't quite safe, the more people will hang out there, the more people will actually walk by there, the safer it will get. And so I think there is, even though the individual might not feel it, if many people decide certain things, the design will change.
like we almost like with everything that we do, we're like, we recognize that this is, these are grand topics and we're very young and have like limited knowledge. And so we're really excited that people are almost excited to be a part of the conversation. I was really excited to be part of the conversation. You could tell. (laughs) Yeah, which is great. Thank you. What Builds Us is brought to you by Dead Highlighters. I know you want to get that bold yellow line down on all your important papers, but what if instead you made a few weak, streaky lines accompanied by that awful sound we all know and love? Dead Highlighters. Get them at every desk near you because everyone forgets to throw them away once they put the cap back on. Want to share your own gripe with life? Let us know. You can send us an email at info.coalescedesign at gmail.com. Or you could follow us or DM us on Instagram at coalesce.design. You can also check out our website where we have a blog post for every episode that we post. That's coalescedesign.org. What Builds Us is written and produced by us, Brian Sanford and Chantel Trombley. Mixing and editing by Chantel. Mastering and music by Will Gooding. You can find more music from him at www.thorns-roses.bandcamp.com. And thanks again to Anne Katrin. It was so great to talk to you, and we look forward to seeing you again. See you next week. I guess I would, we wouldn't see Why would I say that? Well, I, guess, I mean, it wouldn't be weird, but I think it's strange. Yeah. Well, don't we, we usually say, like, thanks, see you next week where we... Come ha- back next week to hear us go outside instead of staying inside with our good friend Ivan. See you then. Bye. I feel like it was a blog post. I said I almost said pog post. <laughs> where we have pug we have we have where we post pugs. Just pugs. We find us online where you can see posts of pugs. Big into them. <laughs> we love pugs. <laughs>